First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Interdependence is our theme for November, and trust is what allows our interdependence to best function and flourish. Trust. Cicela Bach says, whatever matters to human beings, trust is the atmosphere in which it thrives. Whatever matters, trust is the atmosphere in which it thrives. How is that atmosphere in your life? How is it in our congregation? Maybe it could be better. In the 1992 Disney cartoon movie, Aladdin, there are two moments when Aladdin is holding out his hand to Jasmine and asks her, do you trust me? The first time, Aladdin is a street urchin and Jasmine's in disguise as a commoner. The second time, he's in disguise as a prince and she is in her element as a princess in the palace. Would you trust him? Neither time does she have any reason to trust him. But both times, she says yes and takes his hand. It's a risk. She might get let down, hurt, maybe killed if she falls off that magic carpet when it takes a swerve. But she takes the risk. Why? We don't know. I don't think she knows. Jasmine's world has been trustworthy enough that she feels she can trust a stranger. She can take that leap. And because she can trust, what opens up for her and Aladdin is, well, a whole new world. Jasmine's world is opened up, uh, but it's important to note that Jasmine's trust is not a virtue she has. If we said that, we'd have to say that if she'd said no, she'd be lacking some virtue. But no, if she'd said, no, I don't trust you, I am not taking your hand, there would be no basis for finding any fault. Jasmine's trust is not a virtue of Jasmine but it is a virtue of the conditions in which she grew up that those conditions have taught her that trusting strangers is a risk she can sometimes take. The conditions of her upbringing also taught her that she can trust herself in new situations. As the saying goes, a bird sitting on a tree is never afraid of the branch breaking because her trust is not in the branch but in her own wings. Because of that combination of trust in herself and just high enough willingness to trust strangers, she answers yes, takes his hand, takes the leap. Trust is a virtue of social systems, not of individuals. So we need to think about trust in a different way than we think about trustworthiness. Trustworthiness is a virtue of individuals. It's your responsibility to be trustworthy, but it's not your responsibility to trust. Trust may come, 
It may come to you like a grace, but don't force it. If you don't trust some situation, then trust your mistrust and back away. At the same time, I want to urge today that after you have backed away and you're in a space that feels safe, interrogate that experience. Was that a situation where maybe daring the risk of trust would have been worth it? Maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. Trust, in any case, is a collective rather than an individual virtue. Trust is built, if it is built, collectively. Our individual task is to discern how we can contribute our part to collectively building it. Not take foolish outsized risks in clearly untrustworthy situations. Remember the example from Heidi's David Brooks reading, in a restaurant, I trust you to serve untainted fish, and you trust me not to skip out on the bill. Social trust is a generalized faith in the people of your community. It's trusting that most people will do what they ought to do most of the time. Not everybody, maybe not anybody all the time, but most people most of the time. Some shared norms, some level of shared norms, like general agreement on what counts as what one ought to do, is necessary. If two lanes of traffic are merging into one, the drivers in each lane are supposed to take turns. If one butts in line, others honk indignantly. They want to enforce the small fairness rules that make our society function smoothly. Francis Fukuyama's 1995 book, Trust, coined the phrase spontaneous sociability. He said that where social trust is high, spontaneous sociability increases. We can spend less time and energy checking each other out, looking for signs of untrustworthiness, less time and energy guarding and protecting ourselves from being swindled, and can much more efficiently move into cooperating and helping each other out. Spontaneous sociability means that people are able to organize more quickly, initiate action, and sacrifice for the common good. Increased trustworthiness, the individual virtue, helps. When more people have the virtue of being worthy of trust, that facilitates trusting. But that's not enough. Social trust has been falling precipitously in this country, and it's not clear that the institutions are that, that are less trusted are any less trustworthy than ever. Scammers prey on the elderly. Why is that? We tend to suppose, well, they don't think as clearly and can't follow how they're being scammed, and that is sometimes a factor. Another factor, though, is that they come from a generation that was much more trusting a generation whose trust allowed them to accomplish together such things that they are called the greatest generation. In 1964, 77% of Americans said they trusted the federal government to do the right thing most or all of the time. 77%. Then Vietnam, Watergate, which certainly undermined trust in government, and Reaganomics, not just economic policies that said government isn't here for you unless you're rich, but a stream of rhetoric that said government is the problem. You may remember Reagan had that line, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. 
That one line may have done more harm than his policies. Many people trusted that their government actually could do a lot of very helpful things, which is to say they trusted their neighbors to be able to work collectively through elected officials for the common good, which is what trust in government is. And Reagan turned that trust into the butt of a joke. And so by 1994, one in five Americans said they trusted government to do the right thing from 77% to 20% in 30 years. Even so, when phrased as a question of trust in the political competence of their fellow citizens, most people still affirmed that. In 1997, 64% of Americans had a great or good deal of trust in the political competence of their fellow citizens. And then came the Iraq War and the financial crisis and the election of Donald Trump. Today, only a third of Americans say they trust in the political competence of their fellow citizens. The distrust has turned explosive. Explosive distrust is not just an absence of trust or a sense of detached alienation. It's an aggressive animosity and an urge to destroy. Explosive distrust is the belief that those who disagree with you are not just wrong, but illegitimate. It's not that way everywhere. In Denmark and in the Netherlands, trust has been growing. In Denmark, about 75% say people around them are trustworthy. In the Netherlands, two-thirds say so. In the U.S., on the other hand, in 2014, only 30% of Americans agreed that most people can be trusted. That's the lowest number since the survey started asking the question in 1972. And it becomes a vicious downward spiral. When we don't trust each other, we don't form or sustain networks that we can trust, and then trust falls further. When people believe they can't trust others, that others aren't trustworthy, they become less trustworthy themselves. And so our younger people, growing up under conditions of mistrust, have more mistrust. 40% of baby boomers say most people can be trusted. Only 31% of Generation X, born before 1980, say that most people can be trusted. And for millennials, born since 1981, the proportion who say most people can be trusted drops to 19%. We need to acknowledge that sometimes, in some ways, American social trust has been intermixed with delusion. Only 35% of young people versus 67% of old people believe that Americans respect the rights of people who are not like them. Fewer than a third of millennials say America is the greatest country in the world, compared to 64% of members of the silent generation. Believing the U.S. to be the greatest country in the world has always required highly selective measures of greatness. And on many measures, we've been falling further and further behind. And the gap between how high Americans thought of themselves for respecting the rights of people not like them and how much they actually did respect those rights is only recently beginning to narrow. So good for the younger generations for increasingly disavowing those delusions of grandeur. I get how the delusions fostered social trust, but delusions inevitably collapse. Sustainable, non-delusive social trust is possible and maybe 
we'll get there. In the meantime, it's helpful to name the condition that we are currently in. Name the water that, like a fish, we might not notice because we are immersed in it. What we're in the middle of right now doesn't have to stay that way. Our country has been a place of trust and might be again. But as I was saying, it's not up to you to try to make yourself a more trusting person. That might not be a good idea. If you get an email from a prince of Nigeria asking for your help transferring some funds, or an email purporting to be from me asking for Apple gift cards, don't trust it. Making ourselves more trusting in a world that is often untrustworthy is not the issue. What we can do is be on the lookout for opportunities to relate to others in ways that grow trust. And to do that, we have to know how that happens. What is it that grows trust between two people? What grows trust among members of a group or within a congregation? What grows trust among members of a group or within a congregation? I turn here to Brene Brown, who wonderfully combines a scientist's respect and quest for data with a heart-centered gift for understanding it. She says, trust is built in very small moments. When people talked about trust in the research, they said things like, yeah, I really trust my boss. She even asked me how my mom's chemotherapy was going. Or I trust my neighbor because if something's going on with my kid, it doesn't matter what she's doing. She'll come over and help me figure it out. One of the top things that Brown found as a small thing that engenders trust is attending funerals. Someone shows up at your sister's memorial service, it really adds to your sense of trust in them. And another big factor, asking for help when you need it. Trust emerges between people and among people through the accumulation of little things done for each other, demonstrations of care. Looking over the data, Brene Brown discerned seven factors that develop trust. Don't try to make yourself trust people or situations that are untrustworthy, but do be on the lookout for these factors. Be attentive to the emergence of where a higher level of trust might be warranted. She arranged the seven into an acronym that spells BRAVING, B-R-A-V-I-N-G, for Braving Trust. When we trust, we are braving connection with someone else. The acronym is on the cover of your order of service, so you'll have a reminder you can take home with you. B, boundaries. Healthy boundaries define who we are in relation to others. They also help us know what the extents and limits are with others. Personal boundaries are how we teach people who we are and how we would like to be handled in our relationships. Boundaries help you say, this is who I am. So be explicitly proactive about what you're not comfortable with and what your needs and your commitments are. If you're not clear about who you are, I can't trust you. I trust you if you are clear about your boundaries and you hold them and you're clear about my boundaries and you respect them. 
There's no trust without boundaries. R is reliability. I can trust you if you do what you say you're going to do over and over and over again. In our working lives, reliability means that we have to be very clear on our limitations so we don't take on so much, that we come up short and don't deliver on our commitments. In our personal life, it means the same thing. The key part to keeping commitments is not committing more than we can keep. A, accountability. I can only trust you if, when you make a mistake, you're willing to own it, apologize for it, and make amends. I can only trust you if when I make a mistake, I'm allowed to own it, apologize, and make amends. Next is keeping confidences. But since she needs a word that starts with V, she calls it the vault. V, the vault. What I share with you, you will hold in confidence. You will store it away in that locked vault. If it goes in the vault, then it's sealed from public view. And it's not just whether you hold my confidences. If you gossip with me about someone else, if you share with me a story that isn't yours to tell, then my trust in you is diminished. The vault means you respect my story, and a key way that I come to believe you will respect my story is that I see you respecting other people's stories. I is integrity. I cannot trust you and be in a trusting relationship with you if you don't act from a place of integrity and encourage me to do the same. Integrity has three pieces, choosing courage over comfort, choosing what's right over what's fun, fast, or easy, and practicing your values, not just professing your values. N, non-judgment. I can fall apart, ask for help, and be in struggle without being judged by you. And you can fall apart and be in struggle and ask for help without being judged by me. Under some conditions, helping people can actually lower trust. That can happen if we feel that the help is coming from someone who's judging us for not being able to work it out ourselves, judging us for needing their help. If you're the helper, then you can offer reassurances. Oh, this happens all the time. There's no way you could have known how to do that. Or, wow, it's great that you got this far on your own, and I'm impressed. But even with those reassurances, there's still that little edge of suspicion that your assessment of the person's competence might have slid just a hair. The only way to really remove the hint of judgment from helping someone is for you to take turns asking for their help. Only then are the vestiges wiped away of the thought that competence is a ground where we're competing with each other to see who has more of it, which is not a ground of trust. Whether I'm conscious of it or not, if I think less of myself for needing help, then when I offer help to someone, I'll think less of them too. You cannot judge yourself for needing help, but not judge others for needing your help. Real trust doesn't exist unless help is reciprocal. Because only when it's reciprocal is it free of judgment. And so, G, generosity. Here we're talking about interpretive charity. Charitably interpreting what the other person says. Interpreting their actions, too. 
Trust requires that we evince a generosity of spirit in how we understand and interpret each other. Our relationship is only a trusting relationship if you can assume the most generous thing about my words, intentions, and behaviors, and then check in with me, arriving at the most charitable possible interpretation of someone else's words and actions often takes practice and it takes imagination. Assume best intentions. That's a wonderful slogan. It's hard to carry out. I have noticed that its usefulness is limited if our imagination is limited. If the only two interpretations that you can imagine are they are evil or they are stupid, then you may have a hard time deciding which one is the more generous interpretation. When you're hurt and you're betrayed, then your imaginative capacity shrinks. At those times, all you can do is just say you don't know why they did that. You just don't know. As you heal a bit and get a little distance from the wound, your creative, empathetic imagination can start to do a better job of imagining a more generous interpretation. This BRAVING acronym works with self-trust, too. If braving relationships with other people is braving connection, then self-trust is braving self-love. We can't ask people to give us something that we do not believe we are worthy of receiving. An African proverb says, beware the naked man offering you his shirt. And you will know that you're worthy of receiving trust when you trust yourself above everyone else. These are Brene Brown's tools for interpersonal trust. To do our parts in rebuilding social trust, we take those tools and join organizations using those tools of trust building in the development of clubs, associations, and congregations. That you are a member of a congregation in these times when increasing numbers of people aren't already puts you at the forefront of the builders and nurturers of social trust. As David Brooks writes, whether we emerge from this transition stronger depends on our ability from the bottom up and from the top down to build organizations targeted at our many problems. If history is any guide, this will be the work not of months, but of one or two decades. Amen.